We come now, brethren, to the preaching of God's Word, and I invite you to open your Bibles this morning to the book of 1 Peter and the second chapter, the book of 1 Peter and the second chapter this morning, and I will be reading and then preaching on two verses, verses 9 and 10. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. I encourage you to read along silently as I read aloud this morning. Here Peter writes, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for your grace and mercy for this time together this morning. And we would ask now for the work of your Holy Spirit, that he would guide us into all truth, that he would give us an understanding of this passage before us today that he would help us by his power to apply it in such a way that our thinking is transformed and our lives are renewed and directed in the paths of righteousness for your sake. But we ask these things this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. By God's grace this morning, we want to consider thoughtfully and prayerfully who we are as the people of God who we are as the people of God, and what we have been called under grace to do in the spiritual service of the one who has saved us. And I trust you'll remember from our last sermon in 1 Peter chapter 2 on verses 4 through 8 that we have good reason to rejoice in what God is doing in and among us as believers we have good reason to rejoice in the honor that we've been given to believe in Jesus Christ. Because of Christ, who is our living stone, we are now being built up like living stones ourselves as a spiritual house. We have been placed in God's service as those who are called to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, and therefore we have no reason to doubt who we are in Christ. We have no reason to draw back or to shy away from the work of the spiritual ministry that God has called us to do. Whereas we understand more fully who we are because of God's grace towards us and what it is that we should be doing as God's ambassadors, then we will be more empowered we will be more eager to devote ourselves with gratitude to the work that God has set before us to do. And no doubt Peter understood this need for his readers to know with certainty and with spiritual confidence who they were in the eyes of their father and what service their father had called them to, both as a way of promoting Christ's kingdom and as a way of expressing their and our gratitude to God for his work in and through us. Therefore, Peter reminds his readers here in our text this morning, verses 
9 and 10 of 2 Peter chapter 2 of their spiritual identity before God and of the interest that they should possess in proclaiming the excellencies of Jesus Christ. And surely, brethren, there is a need for us here at Sovereign Grace Baptist Church to possess a greater awareness of who we are as God's people and of what we should endeavor to do with our hearts swelled with gratitude to God in service to Jesus Christ here. So let us consider carefully and prayerfully what Peter writes here in our text and how we might lay hold of these same spiritual truths to the praise of our God and to our own spiritual good and encouragement this morning. Let us notice here, just in looking at verse 9 as a whole, that Peter uses a number of rich, encouraging descriptions taken from the Old Testament scriptures, which would have been especially familiar to Peter's Jewish readers, to describe the collective people of God who have been gathered as one, under the new covenant in the name of Jesus Christ. And no doubt this is significant to note this morning because at least by his use of these descriptions in the New Testament, Peter is suggesting that the church of Jesus Christ should not only be described by these terms, but the church of Jesus Christ is actually the greater fulfillment of what these descriptions mean than how they applied to Israel back in the Old Testament. For truly Israel was a chosen race, and that is a highly significant message in the Old Testament. But what the church is now, for example, as God's chosen people taken from every nation under heaven, under the new covenant, takes this description to an even greater and fuller significance. And of course, we'll see how this is the case as we proceed this morning. So let's consider who we are as God's people, beginning here in verse 9, with a description of a chosen race. Where Peter writes, But you, in contrast to those men who were destined to stumble back in verse 8, you are a chosen race. And the significance of this description is found primarily in the word chosen. Chosen. For when Peter stresses here that we are a chosen people, he is removing any possibility that we became God's people by our own choice. But rather, Peter is emphasizing here that our status as God's people came about solely and entirely as a result of God's choosing us. God choosing us. And God chose us. He chose you. He chose me as his children, not because of something that he saw in us, or something that he looked ahead and observed that we might do towards him in terms of obedience in the future. But he chose us because he determined to set his love upon us. 
In fact, God made this point very clear to the chosen race of Israel in the Old Testament so that they would be under no misunderstanding when it came to who chose who. For God declared to his people Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 7, in verses 6 through 8, these words, he says, For you are a people holy to the Lord. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of the peoples who are on the face of the earth, is it is not because you are more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love upon you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and he has redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And therefore, when God declares to his people in Scripture that they are chosen, he leaves no doubt as to why they were chosen. They were not chosen because of their numbers. They were not chosen because of their character. They were not chosen because of their supposed wisdom or insight, but they were chosen because it pleased God for his own purposes to do so. In fact, the Apostle Paul makes this point clear in the New Testament as well when he writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 29 to the Corinthian believers, these words, he says, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly wisdom. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. Those were not the reasons God selected them. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing, things that are so, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So when Peter states here in the beginning of verse 9 that we are a chosen race or literally a, a people or a generation chosen by God, he is pointing us first to God's choice of us, to the fact that we find our true identity first and foremost, not in what we might claim to be, not in what we think ourselves to be, but in what God chose us to be his own people. Truly, brethren, there is great comfort in this. For if God has chosen us, if God has called us as his own, what does it matter then what men might think of us? What does it matter if our enemies think poorly of us? What does it matter what others try to do to us. For ultimately our lives are not in the hands of others, but they are in the mighty hands of the one who chose us and who called us to himself. And the one who has chose us and called us to himself is, is God. He will protect us. He will perform what he has promised to us. And therefore, 
let us joyfully, let us with genuine humility this morning take true comfort in knowing that if we are in Christ, we are chosen. Chosen of God. And let us stand firm in, in knowing who we are. We are not people of our own choosing. We are not people of our own making. We are not self-made men and women. But we are people of God's own choosing. There is real strength and comfort in knowing who we are by the sovereign grace of God. Then secondly, let us notice here in verse 9 that Peter identifies us, those of us who've been chosen and called as a royal priesthood. A royal priesthood. And this morning I'm not going to elaborate on this description, priesthood, because I, I spent some time in Peter's declaration back in verse 5 of this second chapter on the fact that we are priests, on the fact that we are called to be a holy priesthood that offers up spiritual sacrifices to God. And I pointed out then what a, what a great privilege it is for you and I to be priests, to have unrestricted access to the Father through Jesus Christ, to know that the sacrifices that we do offer up continually are being accepted, not because of us, but because of what Jesus Christ is doing and has done for us. And so in calling us priests here, Peter is addressing us as those who are called to serve God in the new spiritual temple that he is in the process of building, a house that is being built up in Christ's name. And yet, brethren, there is something very significant that I do want to comment on this morning here in verse 9 with reference to our identity as priests, and that is the word royal. Royal. You are, Peter declares, a royal priesthood. Not just priests of God, but royal priests. And this concept of being part of a royal priesthood is one that you and I should not quickly overlook. For simply being ordinary priests of God would be honor enough. In fact, none of us would qualify to be priests at all if we had to merit or earn the office. No, we are only priests because God has graciously made us priests. And yet the Apostle Peter would have us to see here by employing this, this fascinating word royal that we have been brought into an order or into a fellowship of priests that all share in all the privileges of spiritual royalty. We are by spiritual birth children of the great king. We are those who bear the great king's name. We are those royal priests who not only serve the great king, the Lord Jesus Christ, but who are already seated with Jesus Christ in heavenly places. According to Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 6, we are joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Romans 8 and verse 17. And therefore, as we consider all the privileges that surround us as the priests of God, and as we consider our relationship to the great priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the fact that we share in his great royal inheritance, 
you and I are royal priests in every sense of the term. We should be profoundly and eternally grateful that Christ took us out of our state of poverty and placed us into his royal spiritual family. We should be overwhelmed with joy. We should be motivated beyond measure at the thought of serving him who made us spiritual royalty. Oh, may we use our service as royal priests in a way that honors Christ's and builds his kingdom. Then let us notice here in verse 9 the, the next two descriptions that Peter gives us to identify us as his people. And these are a holy nation and the people for his own possession. A holy nation and a people for his own possession. These two descriptions are very similar to the ones that I read about back in Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 6. And no doubt the purpose of these two descriptions was to emphasize how God's people are to stand out from the peoples or the nations around them. For you'll remember that ancient Israel was not to be like the nations around her who were pagan and idolatrous nations, but rather Israel was to be a holy nation, a nation set apart, a nation consecrated to God and his laws. And of course, we as God's people, as the church of Jesus Christ, are to be a holy community as well. We are to be separate. We are to be consecrated to Christ. We are to be a community that stands out in holiness from all others. In fact, we saw earlier in this same letter from Peter, back in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 13, that since the one who has called us is holy, we should be holy in all of our conduct. For as the people look upon us, they should see our holy and pure behavior. They should see that there's something holy and distinctive about the way that we live. They should see that there's something that sets us apart from those who dishonor the Lord and who openly disregard his laws. For our holiness, our purity, should commend us as God's own people. Our holiness of life should speak from us just as loudly as what we confess with our mouths. Then with regard to this description of us as a people of his own possession, this plainly speaks to the fact that we as God's people are very precious to him. He owns us. He treasures us. He delights in us. We can be identified in a very clear manner by the way in which God particularly cares for us and how his care is consistently manifested. For Wherever there is a true assembly, wherever there is a true gathering of believers in Jesus Christ who are called together for worship and called together for service by God's appointment, there will undoubtedly be clear evidence of God's affection and provision for them. I want you to think about that. Wherever there is truly 
a group of his people gathered, there will be evidences of God's affection and provision. Has that not been the case with us? Is that not the case here? Wherever his true people meet, wherever his true possession is, there is God's love. There is God's provision. Oh, they may be very small. They may have very limited resources. They may seem insignificant by comparison to others, but because they are, because we are his own possession, there will always be undeniable evidence of his loving, fatherly concern and of the sufficiency of his grace to them as his people and as a congregation. For God's commitment to his people is not to be measured by size, is not to be measured by volume, it's not to be measured by the impression that worldly men have of it, but by the constancy of God's love, by the evidence of God's care, which will never fail, for God's people will never lack his compassionate care, nor will they ever find God to be absent from his own appointed means of grace. Therefore, beloved, let us rejoice in what it means to be the people of his own possession. Let us be eager to show ourselves as his possession. Then lastly, brethren, let us notice here in the last part of verse 9, what it is that we should be engaged in and why we should be so deeply motivated to fulfill our callings as a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a people of God's own possession. For notice what Peter writes here in verse 9 of First Peter chapter 2, that God himself had a divine motivation an intention in selecting us and sending us out into the world. And that was for this purpose, so that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Of course, these words from Peter here are very instructive to us as the people of God with respect to what our, primarily, our primary task as a church, as a gathering of chosen people, should actually be. And our primary task is that of proclaiming something. Proclaiming something. For we do not exist, brethren, as a church to promote programs. We do not exist to present something that we hope that others will join in with us or participate in what we are doing. But we are primarily called to proclaim something about the one who can deliver men and women, teenagers, boys and girls from spiritual darkness. For the church's primary task, our primary spiritual task as the people of God that Peter just described is that of proclamation. For the means that God has given us to promote his glory, the means that God has given us to further the kingdom of his son is contained in a message. 
in a message, and we are to be proclaiming that message through our varied and vital callings. And we are to have complete confidence in the power of this message and in the one that the message points to. For while we are living in a day when many Christians seem to be very hesitant to proclaim this message, I fear that many are becoming increasingly more ashamed of this message. You and I must not fail to stand firm in proclaiming this message. What is the actual content of this message that we are to not leave off proclaiming? Well, notice here at the end of verse 9 that we are to be continually proclaiming the excellencies of him. The excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And no doubt, no doubt, the one who has called us is God. And his excellencies as our creator and as the one who set his unfailing love upon us from eternity past should be the focus of our unceasing praise and proclamation. However, since Peter's focus here in verses 9 and 10 is on God's redemptive work, it seems most likely that the one that you and I are to praise, the one whose excellencies that we are to be speaking about continually, is the Lord Jesus Christ. But when we think about it, the content of the gospel is the content of the message but when we think about the content of the gospel, we think about the excellencies of Jesus Christ. We are thinking about his qualifications as the God-man. We are thinking about his selflessness and coming to this earth and taking upon himself the form of a servant and then dying for his people upon the cross. We are thinking about his perfect obedience to God's law and his substitutionary sacrifice for sin, without which there would be no forgiveness without which there would be no redemption. Oh, in all these ways, Jesus Christ is most excellent. These are his many excellencies of which we must be proclaiming. And yet, the one excellency of Christ that Peter identifies here out of a truly endless list of excellencies we could mention is Christ's excellency as the one who calls his own people out of darkness. The one who calls his own people out of darkness and into his marvelous light. For Jesus Christ declared himself in John chapter 8 and verse 12, as you know, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Therefore, when we proclaim Christ, we are to primarily proclaim him as the one who delivers sinners from spiritual darkness, who places them in the light of his kingdom. And this is the proclamation that sinners desperately need. It's the proclamation that all of us need to hear and be reminded of continually even if we've been believers for a long time, we still need to be reminded of this truth continually so that we do not lose sight of what Christ has done. 
so that we remember where we once were and where we are now and who brought us to the place that we are in now. In fact, let me suggest to you this morning that God brought you here this morning in his kind providence to hear this very message. Whether you're an unbeliever or a believer here this morning to remind you or possibly even to confront you with the fact that without Jesus Christ, you are living or you were living in spiritual darkness. And that darkness separates you from all the good things of God and a vital relationship with him. This darkness will ultimately consume you and eternally separate you from him. And yet, because of the excellencies of Jesus Christ, namely his mercy, his compassion towards sinners, there is a way out of that thick, all-consuming darkness from which you cannot escape on your own. For Christ left the glories of heaven above, and Christ came to this earth. Christ cuts through the darkness. Christ calls men and women out of the darkness by drawing them through his spirit to his light. And those who recognize their lost and darkened condition, those who flee in faith to the light which shines only through the righteousness of Christ himself, are delivered from the kingdom of darkness and placed into Christ's marvelous light. I ask you this morning, you sitting here this morning, have you been delivered from this darkness? Have you been truly delivered from this darkness? Have you, through the enabling grace of God, placed your trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ alone? Have you undergone a spiritual transformation from which you once delighted in darkness, but now you delight in the light and you long to live in the splendor of his life? If not, come to Christ today. Come to Christ today. Come to him who is light. Come to him who gives life. For the light that Christ gives us as Redeemer ushers his people into his kingdom, which is marvelous indeed. It is a light that is itself focused upon the excellence of his mercy. And of course, you and I should be eager to proclaim the excellent mercy of our God as expressed through the work of Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. And not just because we know of this information intellectually, not just because we understand this is a theological reality that is taught in Scripture, and because it needs to be understood by God's people, but because we've experienced this personally. Have you experienced these things personally? Do you know of what I'm speaking in your own life? Once you were in darkness. Once you were surrounded by darkness, so thick you couldn't even see forward. You couldn't feel your way out. You couldn't trick your way out. You couldn't devise a way out. Only Christ could have delivered you and did deliver. In fact, our greatest motivation 
where proclaiming the marvelous nature of God's great mercy is the reality that we ourselves have been the recipients of mercy, a mercy that has changed us forever. And our gratitude for this mercy compels us to proclaim it. We proclaim it. Whereas Peter reminds his readers and us here in verse 10 of First Peter chapter 2, for once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Surely, dear Christian friend, this marvelous reality that we are debtors to God's mercy, this knowledge that we would have remained strangers to God had Christ not through his suffering delivered us should never be too far away from our minds should never cease to stir us and to inspire us at some level to be more grateful for the mercy that we have received for how undeserving of mercy are we? Very undeserving. Oh, dear Christian friend, are you truly grateful for God's mercy towards you? Does that gratitude run deep? Can you say that it does? truly mean that it does? Does it run deep enough to regularly compel you to serve him? Does it run deep enough to regularly compel you to proclaim Christ as the merciful one to your family, to your friends, to your neighbors, to those who cross your path providentially? Oh, may we always be committed to declaring the excellency of Christ's mercy. May we never cease to praise God for what we have received. And if you are a believer today, you've received much. You've received much. And in the context of this passage, you've received light. Light to see Jesus Christ. And when that light dawns, and you finally see Christ for the first time through the eyes of faith, how excellent he is, how wonderful he is, how beautiful he is to the soul. In fact, it's hard to take our eyes off of him, right? May our eyes be placed upon him today through the eyes of faith because of the light that Christ has given us. May the vision of Christ through Holy Scripture, through the work of the Holy Spirit today, compel us to love him and serve him more. Compel us to see and to recognize that we are recipients of his mercy, that he has called us as his people to worship him and to serve him in the furtherance of his kingdom. And may God give us the grace to do that today. Let's not play games. Let's be serious now. Let's take these truths for the truth that they are. And God give us the grace to live in life. Let's pray. Let's pray. Our God and Father, how we so appreciate the truth of your word today how we so appreciate this text that we've been considering. And we would ask, Lord, 
that you would help us to prayerfully consider what has been said in light of our own lives and to do that which you call us to do by the work of your Spirit. Give us the grace to see this morning who we are, to own up to who you've called us to be, to take responsibility for our spiritual identity, to serve you as the people that you've called us to be. What a great privilege it is to be called by you and to be given all these wonderful names and titles and identities. We pray that we would take them seriously today and that through the power of your Spirit we would apply ourselves to be the kind of people that we should be. If there's somebody here this morning who is outside of Christ, who has never come to Christ in faith and repentance, may you help them to see that they are, apart from your grace, surrounded by darkness. That darkness grips them. That darkness has hold of them. That darkness will not let go of them. That darkness will consume them, swallow them, until they turn to Jesus Christ. You can deliver them out of that darkness. May you be pleased, God, to draw many out of darkness today into the light of your Son through faith and repentance, through new life in him. And may you be pleased to deliver many out of darkness and place them into the kingdom, the marvelous kingdom of your light. For we ask these things, and we ask for your help this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.